Hello and welcome to The Interview, a podcast that presents conversations with top figures in media and politics. I'm Ada McLaughlin, the editor-in-chief of Mediaite, and this week I'm joined by Paula Reed, a White House correspondent for CBS News. I called her up this week to discuss how COVID-19 tore through the Trump administration, what it's like reporting on a White House under quarantine, what goes on behind the scenes of the Trump press shop, and what we have in store for the last few weeks of the 2020 election. Paula Reed is the omnipresent White House correspondent for CBS News. When she's not interrogating President Donald Trump in the briefing room, you can catch her on air reporting breaking news from the White House on CBS This Morning through to CBS Evening News at night. Paula, thanks for joining us. I am so thrilled to be here with you. So I am very excited to talk to you today because you really do have a front row seat at what's going on in the White House. And the past month has been one of the craziest news cycles in you know recent White House memory. You've been at CBS News for a decade now, but I think it's safe to say that, that covering the White House this year has been an entirely new experience. You were recently forced to start carrying out your reporting from home. You've been quarantining uh, after sitting front row at a press briefing with Kayleigh McEnany, uh, the press secretary who recently tested positive for coronavirus. I suppose my first question should be, how are you feeling? And what is it like covering a lockdown White House while under quarantine? Well, thank you so much for asking. I'm feeling great. Uh, On Wednesday morning, I had my fourth negative COVID test. I have no symptoms. And and thank you. Unfortunately, ViacomCBS provides access to free and pretty easy testing. And I'm still collecting a paycheck, even though I am quarantined. So as quarantines go, I think (laughs) it's about as comfortable as it gets. Yeah, that's pretty great. Yeah, I, I sit at my desk here uh, in my home as opposed to in our little closet uh, at the White House, still calling the same people, still talking to my colleagues. Earlier today, I was on the phone with uh, one of our medical correspondents with a 60 Minutes piece coming up. So still doing the same work, uh, just in a different setting. And look, this is, this is something that in many ways, it was inevitable that there would be an outbreak or that I would be exposed in a way that would trigger uh, Viacom CBS's quarantine requirements. And I, I tried really hard uh, to be as careful as I could. I, I didn't go on Air Force One a few times. I haven't been to recent campaign rallies, but uh, I was I was still exposed. Uh, and, and I understand it. And I do think that it's good that my company is having me do this and continue to, to have me work from home. I even, I joined our coverage of the debate last week with Nora O'Donnell from my living room. <laughs> That's great. Uh, I, yeah, I can imagine that's that's a comfortable place to be corresponding from, uh, especially with everything that's going on in the White House right now. Now, is is you say that there's sort of a protocol for Viacom CBS. Is that just if you are in contact with anyone at the White House who tests positive, there's sort of a two-week quarantine that needs to be carried out? Yeah, if you come into contact with anyone, doesn't necessarily just have to be at the White House. There is an mm-hmm. expectation per CDC guidelines that you will take precautions, that you will quarantine yourself, that you will get tested, monitor your symptoms, take your temperature, all that good stuff. And anytime there was a case in the White House or in the press corps, because we've had a few, I would be in touch with human resources and we would do our own contact tracing. And up until Mm -hmm. this point, up until this briefing, I had managed uh, to avoid any exposure. And even in that briefing, I was wearing a mask But as we know, Kaylee and three of her young press assistants who were sitting, one of them probably within six feet of me, they've all now tested positive. So then it was more than enough to meet the threshold. I mean, it sounds like that, you know, CBS News is taking it very seriously. The the White House, on the other hand, we've just had a a pretty insane month in White House News. And that's in in large part because the president, the first lady, 
multiple senators, the press secretary, as you said, several staffers in the press shop, now multiple White House reporters all contracted the coronavirus. Uh, I could go on, there's a lot more examples, but Trump himself was hospitalized. He was given experimental treatments, released back to the White House, and there was sort of a this, like dramatic and vaguely alarming scene of him returning and going out onto the balcony. How did we get to a point, and if you can offer any insights and, you know, just from going to work there every day, how do we get to a point where the entire White House has been sort of locked down because so much of the Trump administration has contracted this virus now? There's been a very cavalier attitude towards this virus in the West Wing throughout the pandemic even when there would be moments where they would circulate a memo that people when they were at their desks or, or moving around the West Wing had to wear masks, it only lasted for a few days because most of the people in the West Wing are looking to the president. What does he do? What does he reward? Who does he perhaps, you know, mock? Uh, and those people wearing masks. So there really has been uh, this attitude in the West Wing that they did not want to even take basic precautions, wearing masks, social distancing. As you've seen uh, for the past couple of months, the president has been conducting business as usual, uh, greeting foreign leaders. He's out on the campaign trail. It seemed inevitable that there would be an exposure, but it was still surprising uh, that it got to the president and, and moved through the West Wing so quickly. But if you look back again, even when they knew uh, there was a potential for exposure, for example, to Hope Hicks, still holding briefings, uh, still not wearing masks. But that's really the way it's been run for the past several months. So it, it, it's shocking in some ways. And then in other ways, if you've been there in the West Wing, as I have since February, it, it, it was bound to happen. Yeah, and you know, I, I, I totally agree. It was shocking that the, the president and that so many people close to him contracted this virus. But you, I mean, it, you could have seen it coming because, I mean, while most of the country is locked down, I'm not allowed to go to a concert, whether it's outdoors or indoors, the president was still conducting rallies. So I imagine that there were certain people within the White House, within the administration, that were probably thought that wearing masks inside was a good idea, that they should be socially distancing in the White House, but that the, you know, I imagine the discipline on that front comes from the top. And if you have a president that is, has an attitude that is sort of dismissive of the guidelines that his own CDC is putting out, the, the entire White House is probably not going to be following those as, as strictly uh, as you would like. Um, is that the sense that you got, I mean, coming up to, the, to this point where there was an outbreak at the White House, that sort of the, the entire administration was a little bit, you know, relaxed about the guidelines because of the way the president was talking about these things? Yeah, I'd say more than a little bit relaxed. <laughs> it wasn't even uh, any effort really to adhere to basic social distancing, uh, wearing masks, most of the protection that reporters were afforded came through the White House Correspondents Association or individual companies or the individuals themselves uh, and the precautions that they took to protect themselves and protect those uh, around us. Even the, the seating chart that you see, I was in the front row the day of the briefing where I was exposed to Kaylee, but that was my assigned seat. Um, I'm technically socially distanced. I'm one of three network reporters who got to be in there, but a lot of the precautions were left to, up to us. And I know publicly many other reporters have expressed frustration uh, that the White House has done has not done more. Uh, but again, it goes back to, to February, March. I really did a calculation on the risk that I was taking, not only for myself, but also for my husband uh, in being in this environment during a pandemic. And I understood who I was dealing with 
And this was a risk that I wanted, I was willing to take, even though it meant not being able to see my family, uh, probably for this whole year, uh, maybe into next year, because the story is so important and it was so important to me to be there to cover it and not appearing to be someone who would likely die of COVID. I thought even worst case scenario, um, I, I still was willing to take that risk because I wanted to be as close to, as I could to the story. And you're set to return to the White House this week on, on Thursday after quarantining since, you know, uh, Kayleigh McEnany, as we said, tested positive. Uh, are you nervous at all? Uh, I feel like I'd think twice about going on Air Force One right now. So Air Force One is something I have actually avoided for the past several months intentionally because if mm -hmm. anyone else traveling with you tests positive, it triggers that quarantine. Mm -hmm. So you have to do that calculation. Wow, it's great to be on Air Force One, to travel with the president, have access to any officials who come back. Even the president has come back a lot. That's a great reporting opportunity, a source development opportunity. But I don't want to be out of work for two weeks. So mm -hmm. I had actually tried to avoid that just so I wouldn't have to quarantine for two weeks. I will likely continue to avoid that unless we're pool on election day, which I don't think we, we are, in which case I might just throw on my goggles. Uh, that's my, my <laughs> protection. But again, the goggles, the face masks, the face shields, the N95s, it's not gonna keep you from that quarantine. So it's a few things you're trying to protect against. But yeah, I, I don't think I'd be going on Air Force One anytime soon, just because I don't wanna be <laughs> reporting from my apartment to the extent that mm. I can avoid it. And what's your take on the rallies? I know some White House reporters are steering clear of them. And actually, Jonathan Carl of, of ABC News compared covering the indoor rallies to taking your family to Fallujah. Um, now he was speaking about indoor rallies. The outdoor ones are a slightly safer affair, uh, I'd say. But are you, are you interested in, in covering any of the president's rallies between now and Election Day? So I've covered so many rallies. And as reporting opportunities go, uh, it's always best to be there where the story is. But again, when I did the, the calculation of the risk, right? Mm -hmm. You have to get on Air Force One usually, or you travel commercial if you're not with the pool. You're there, you're often sort of corralled into a, a very specific location with the press, so a little hard to socially distance. I know there were some accommodations made, not a lot. You sometimes have people who get up uh, in your face as you're leaving, as you're there. It seemed to me to be a lot of unnecessary exposure when I could watch it at home. So just in the past month or so, I have not gone to the rallies. I had the opportunity to attend one and I did not, again, just because I felt that the risk of, it, risk of exposure was so high, particularly when you're in the press pool. So that's the, the group of reporters who travel with the president. You go on Air Force One, then you're crammed into these little vans and sometimes you can socially distance and sometimes you can't. And then you're <laughs> back on Air Force One. It just seemed like a really high, high level uh, of exposure. But in the next couple of weeks, if I am asked to travel to rallies, uh, fly commercial and travel on my own, it's something I'd consider, but the indoor outdoor uh, risk is there. And you know, you'll probably see me wearing goggles, just that extra nerdy looking <laughs> uh, layer of protection. It's gotta be done. It's gotta be done. I think you'll, you'll look back fondly on the goggles, uh, <laughs> and not, not embarrassed by them. At least it was safe. Um, now, do you sense any change in talking to administration officials and how the White House is going to be dealing with this going forward? Uh, I mean, the president himself hasn't changed at all, it seems, um, from his stay at Walter Reed to his return to the White House. He's still holding rallies. He plans on holding them regularly. Mark Meadows, the chief of staff this week, refused to talk to reporters without a mask on. Do you see any change in the attitude of uh, those working in the White House? Uh, you know, I, I certainly don't see it front facing. I mean, in, in your reporting just behind the scenes, 
Um, is there a sense that this should be taken more seriously? No, I don't, I don't get that sense. While most senior officials are trying to avoid the West Wing over the past 10 days or so, if they're not already quarantined, mm-hmm. uh, you look to the president, you look to the chief of staff, Mark Meadows, for example, uh, particularly the press office, he oversees that operation. He's the one who's overseen the West Wing at a time when you'd have this outbreak that not only reached the president, but reached through the entire press staff down to these 23, 24-year-old press assistants. So if their boss doesn't even want to keep a mask on to answer questions from reporters on the Hill indoors just a few feet away, it's unreasonable to expect that suddenly there's going to be a mask mandate in the White House press office. I do not anticipate any sort of changes uh, in behavior within the West Wing. Maybe there'll be a few more masks. Uh, We've seen that repeatedly uh, over the past several months. There'll be some measures that'll put in place and then they'll just kind of be rolled back and relaxed to the point where where there are none. And again, it all comes from the top. If the president's not going to change his ways, Mark Meadows isn't going to change their ways, why would people sort of from the top down change their, their habits? Yeah. And, you know, what I find so fascinating and a little bit disturbing about the mask issue is that the the White House clearly sees masks as an important messaging thing, right? Like the, the press secretary is very often t- touting that Trump has worn a mask on, you know, these occasions and she'll name the occasions where he's worn a mask. And then Trump will go out and mock the, the wearing of masks. And when you have that sort of completely inconsistent messaging from the White House, I can't imagine that uh, from the top down that you'd have everyone in, in the administration wearing a mask, which probably makes it a little bit nerve wracking for you going back to the White House and, and covering it, thinking, you know, they're not taking the precautions that, you know, any business in America would be taking. Um, you know, I can imagine that's a little bit nerve wracking. It's just the risk that you accept, to be honest. You do the best mm-hmm. you can. I avoided the press office a lot. Um, primarily because I got my information mostly from real sources uh, that I've developed and don't have a need to go in there. But sometimes logistically, uh, you have to ask about press availability. You have to go in there to get your COVID test. I kind of avoid that whole scene because they weren't really taking precautions. I'll Mm -hmm. probably do that uh, even more more going forward. But it it is pretty shocking uh, that they don't take more precautions. But as you said, mixed messages. Do as I say, not as I do. It's a question I posed to the vice president at one point. Uh, the task force was holding a briefing, you know, telling people about social distancing. Meanwhile, the campaign was holding events. And I asked him, it sounds like you're saying and have said since the beginning, do as we say, not as we do, be it about handshakes, social distancing, events. And though there have been many mixed messages throughout this pandemic from this White House, that has been one consistent theme. Do as we say, not as we do. There are CDC guidelines. We'll put them on a fancy poster paper, but we are not actually going to abide by them within the confines of the West Wing. Yeah. Did you get any sense that we're going to have coronavirus task force briefings coming back uh, at any point in the near future? I never know what to expect when it comes uh, to the task force. (laughs) I think you could potentially see here or there may be a little more press availability, but to have those task force briefings like what we had with the vice president and Dr. Burks and Dr. Fauci, very unlikely. Because mm-hmm. what we've seen is Dr. Burks and Dr. Fauci have not consistently stayed on the message that the administration would like them to. So they have been sidelined in favor uh, of other people, particularly uh, Dr. Scott Atlas. Uh, he mm-hmm. is someone who is willing to agree uh, with the president, advocate for the president's uh, preferred uh, approach. There have been some, um, according to my sources, there have been some pretty intense debates uh, on the task force between Dr. Atlas and other folks. But I would be very surprised to see anyone who is not Dr. Atlas 
come out in the next three weeks. Because again, the, most of the doctors are not willing to endorse the messages being put out by the administration. Do you have any sense what the energy in the White House is like? I mean, th- this really does, it, it seems from, from my position, you know, not, not having, you know, sources in the White House and not reporting on it, but I get the sense that it's, it must be like really quiet there now. You have the president who is, you know, either hunkered down in, in the residence or, or going out and doing uh, rallies. And then a lot of staff have sort of left and are either quarantining or either infected with the virus or are staying home. Um, and just looking at the fact that we're now, you know, a, a few weeks from the general election, it, do you do you get any sense that there that people in the White House feel like these are the final days of this administration, or is there really are are they convinced that they're going to be winning the upcoming election and and back in the White House as soon as they get a sort of handle on the outbreak at uh, the coronavirus outbreak that has sort of rocked the White House? So it's interesting when the president was first diagnosed. There was a hope among some of the advisors that I spoke with that maybe less President Trump, right, a less active press room, a less active <laughs> West Wing would be a good thing, right? Yeah. They thought that that would make him more sympathetic um, mm-hmm. and perhaps help help him because so much of this election is a referendum on President Trump, his handling of COVID, and just those voters who don't particularly like him as a person or his Twitter account, but they're willing to, they're, they're willing to, to look at his economic record. They thought this could be a good thing, but that is not what happened, right? That was not yeah. uh, to be his, his fate. And now it is absolute domination of the airwaves, of eyeballs, of social media. So within the West Wing, there is a concern uh, that the president may um, not be playing the next few weeks exactly right. I'm told he'll do two to three events a day, maybe up to up to six in a wow. day heading into the election. And so, yeah, it takes a lot of the energy out of the West Wing, which is already a, a little skeletal staff as so many people are quarantined. But talk about energy. I mean, the president, despite his age, despite the fact that he just got a Walter Reed, I mean, he is bringing this show on the road and he is going to continue uh, to campaign up until the very last minute. And there are people who, who, even if they don't think it's the right approach, they are true believers. They support him. They believe, despite any of his um, personal flaws, that he has done right by this country, that he's delivered on his campaign promises, and they would like to see him get a second term. And, you know, I was, uh, from the sort of informal advisors of the president that I've spoken to, I got a sense after he got the diagnosis that there was this real hope that he would perhaps, as you say, take on a little bit more of an empathetic tone when it comes to the pandemic, uh, but also really get on message uh, and drive home a consistent message against Joe Biden in the last couple of weeks of the election. Now, that has not happened, uh, obviously. Uh, what I find fascinating is that he, the the decision seems to have been made to really focus on giving interviews to sympathetic outlets. I saw recently you you referenced in a tweet uh, Brian Stelter's book uh, Hoax, uh, and to note that Trump is not always well served by conducting interviews uh, inside the conservative media bubble, where he really only gets asked softball questions and and sort of appeals to uh, a pretty small audience. In light of that, I'm, I'm curious as to what you, you made of his conservative media tour in, in the aftermath of his release from Walter Reed. Uh, by my count, he appeared on Fox News three times. He had two interviews with Maria Bartiromo. He uh, had a chat with Dr. Mark Siegel. He did an hours-long interview with Rush Limbaugh and then an interview with Mark Levin. What do you think of that strategy just a couple weeks out from the election when he's down in all the polls and it seems like what he should be doing is broadening his base of support? 
but I get the sense that he's really just trying to appeal to uh, quite a narrow base. And I, I don't know if that's going to be successful, but I'm curious as to what you make of it. Yeah, it seems on Rush Limbaugh or Maria Bartiromo's show, you're preaching to the converted. You're mm. speaking to your base. And it's also, it's a safe space. When there were a lot of unanswered questions about his health, when he tested positive, when he knew he had been exposed, whether he it appears that he still traveled, potentially exposing donors. Uh, his physician, uh, during that time that he was in Walter Reed, gave a series of statements that were then contradicted by his own subsequent statements in addition to the chief of staff. There were a lot of questions that the president could have come out uh, and gotten ahead of, even an interview with the Associated Press or something, just come out and get the facts on the record. So the fact that he stayed contained in that conservative media bubble, and, and to a large extent his surrogates did as well, that suggests uh, that there were some questions they didn't, they didn't want to answer. Uh, and that's a missed opportunity, again, to convert those, those voters in the middle uh, that they thought they might be able to, to bring over to his side, particularly with the Supreme Court fight. Uh, women, uh, in particular, uh, those voters who just don't like the president uh, as a person, um, but may be willing to vote for him, uh, depending on his policies. But if this is indeed, this election, a referendum on him and his conduct and his handling of COVID, by and large, the polls show that most voters do not think the administration has done a good job in handling COVID, and he really hasn't done anything, it would appear, to, to sway voters the other way since he himself was diagnosed. There seems to be a defense from the White House whenever, the White House and the campaign, uh, whenever anyone cites the polls, which overwhelmingly show him down in you know the key swing states and nationally, um, that you shouldn't listen to the polls. I mean, he, he just said today that, uh, you know, that, that all the polls are, are fake, which is something he says frequently. Do you think people in the White House and the campaign actually believe that? Do you think they truly believe that the polls are wrong and that he is overall going to, you know, stride into election day and actually beat Joe Biden? Or do you think that's just sort of pre-election hubris? So he has legitimate reason to say don't trust mm -hmm. the polls, right? We look back at 2016, uh, but 2016 was different. We're in a different state. It's a different question on the ballot, right? He's not running against the machine, against the system, against the swamp. Yeah. Arguably now you are the machine, right? <laughs> you are the president. As much as you want to say X, Y, and Z will only happen in Biden's America, a lot of that is happening in, in Trump's America. It is a referendum on him and his handling of COVID of a lot of different issues. And it goes back to messaging. He has not been able to successfully sort of pivot the conversation away from COVID to an economic message or to a law and order message. It just hasn't quite caught. And a lot of that is just this administration's overall inability to stay on message. And that's something that we know. It goes all the way back to, to pre-COVID. As a journalist, it can actually be quite liberating because in the Obama administration, they would have a message or a policy, and then you were hammered with that from every agency. I covered the Justice Department under Obama. From every agency, from every direction, it was this message. You could not get off message. They would farm out little nuggets to preferred outlets, and it, it was just, it was a lot of access journalism. It was very frustrating, but now if there is a message, usually a few hours into the day, the president has, has maybe contradicted it on his Twitter account. Some other story comes out, a lawsuit comes out, something else is revealed. They don't traditionally stay on message. Now, there was a minute, just a minute at the beginning of the COVID response, when it appeared that they realized that this was going to be a matter of life and death, mm. that a re-election that looked so, so likely 
could could be could be derailed by this. And it looked like the vice president's office was going to take this over. Remember, Mike Pence was going to he was going to kind of be leading the response had, had sort of tapped Dr. Deborah Burks to come back from her work abroad. She was going to be the face of it. It's kind of going to be a sober, serious, more traditional Washington messaging. That didn't last long <laughs> because the president saw the attention they were getting. He took it over. And that's when we got these briefings, these fights with Dr. Fauci, these interviews with Bob Woodward, the president's inability to sort of stay on one accurate, consistent message about COVID has really cost him and, and put him in this situation. And he continues to do the same thing, right? We can't even trust what his physician says about the condition of his lungs. We can't, we can't get a straight answer. So he finds himself a couple weeks out from election um, without a clear message uh, to, to voters at, at this point. Obviously, make America great again, keep America great again. But it, it's unclear beyond that what his message is, even his message to, to women voters uh, this week, suburban women specifically. He's mostly focused on on zoning laws, <laughs> which I'm sure a lot of people are con legitimately, that's something that they consider. But if you speak to any suburban women right now, they're worried about their jobs, their significant other's jobs, when their kids are going back to school, when they can see their mom in the nursing mm. home. Zoning laws, not, not high up on the list, right? So I mean, it it's just, like it's an all-consuming issue. You know, yes, you can't exactly. ignore it. Exactly. And then his, his message to seniors, he's trying to appeal to them, but then he sort of mocks them by suggesting Joe Biden <laughs> is hor hor horrifying, right? Uh, a senior, right? A resident in a senior citizen's uh, nursing home. So the messaging it's just not clear and it's not consistent. And that's the biggest concern from his advisors. I feel like that's something that's chief after staff after chief after chief of staff after chief after of staff has tried to, to do, has tried to get him to stay on one message. And I, I assume that, that Mark Meadows has sort of just said, you know, there's nothing you can do. Trump is Trump. That like I, you know, there's no way to streamline the information getting to him. There's no way to to sort of restrict what the message that gets out is. You just have to, you know, deal with what he sort of talks about every day. Now, you, you mentioned the sort of messaging from his physicians. I can imagine it must have been incredibly frustrating to deal with the White House in the last few weeks, given their apparent reluctance to answer questions about the president's health. I mean, we still don't know when Trump last tested negative for COVID and whether he was positive for the virus at the debate, at the first presidential debate. Did you feel sort of stonewalled through that whole process? So look, there's a long history of White Houses, various parties, being secretive about the president's health. What was different here though, is that they couldn't keep their story straight because you'd see the president's physician come out, give a sort of rosy outlook on how he was doing. He dodged a few questions, but you had some sympathy for him. He's not someone who's out in front of the press a lot, but then you see mm. the chief of staff, Mark Meadows, step in front of a pool camera. And Mark Meadows has been in this game a long time. He, he understands what he's doing when he steps in front of a pool camera, asks to speak off the record, then puts out contradictory statements. Then you have the physician come out and contradict his own statement. It was once again, they couldn't keep their story consistent. So if they wanted to gloss over some things, if they wanted to put a, a rosy shine on this, they just couldn't do it in a way that was very effective because inexplicably, they were constantly contradicting themselves and contradicting one another. So yeah, in some ways it was frustrating, but it's not like they were very effectively stonewalling. Uh, there were people talking everywhere. They just weren't all saying the same thing. And then of course you have the president's own interpretation uh, of his medical status. And he's also someone who is bound sometimes to give you information. Uh, he's the one who's actually confirmed uh, several White House staffers who have test positive. He'll, he'll say their names. 
Uh, so it's it, it was frustrating, but it was also kind of par for the course. Uh, even if they intend intend to cover things up or put a positive spin, they just didn't do it very effectively. I did feel sort of sorry for Dr. Sean Conley, his the White House physician, when he when he was getting pressed on whether the president was ever put on oxygen, and he said he hasn't been put on it this morning, and then repeatedly <laughs> said that, which was just the most obvious tell for the, the what he was trying to to hide about the no, president's right? health. It because, was like yeah, if you if you physician want... military experience, they're not exactly known for being imprecise in their language. <laughs> exactly, and it's like you're giving all this timelines. You're giving all this other information. And then it's like the one thing that you're being sort of sketchy about. Obviously, reporters have a nose for that and are going to keep asking about it. Uh, I wanted to talk about the press briefings. You've made uh, a name for yourself with pretty tough questions of Trump uh, and his press secretary. In return, the president has treated you to personal insults, I'd say, more than once. Um, in one briefing from April or earlier this year, when you questioned him about the U.S. response to the pandemic, uh, the president called you disgraceful. And then in an interview with the New York Post, he uh, said you were angry and complained that you weren't Donna Reed, uh, who's a housewife character from a mid-century sitcom. Uh, what does it feel like when the president of the United States is insulting you in that manner? Do you, do you care at all or does it just sort of roll off? So it goes back to the fact that I am a recovering lawyer. And mm -hmm. whenever I go into these press briefings, it's not personal. It's, it's I'm trying to get information. And I do that the same way I used to as a prosecutor. And our whole White House team, we all work together every day to craft questions, not just a question, but six follow-ups that are based in facts that we have checked. We speak with our sources. We're going to try to get that information. So if I ask the president, you know, what did you do in February to, to, help, to help hospitals prepare? And it's some sort of personal insult or a deflection. I, my brain just translates that as not the answer. Move on to the follow-up question. Mm -hmm. It's the same exact thing I did as a lawyer, same exact thing I did as a prosecutor. And that's how, how I approach it. I, I really, I don't take it personally. It doesn't hurt my feelings. It's all about trying to get that information. And what's been so surprising to me is there've been some questions that were great opportunities for him to appeal to voters. Uh, for example, when I asked him why he kept claiming credit for Veterans Choice, it would have been an opportunity for him to say, yeah, I didn't pass it, but I expanded it and I improved upon it. I made it better. And I'm sure people would have been like, oh, what did he do? And maybe go look. Instead, when I pressed him on that, he stormed out of a press briefing. There was another time when I asked him about his plan to help the economy. And it, again, it was personal insults, but it was an opportunity to really speak to voters. And I think when he pivots to that sort of shtick of attack, attack the press, I think it works in some, some circles and in some instances, but when you're dealing with, with life and death and the economic devastation that we've seen over the past several months, it's a missed opportunity for him. And I think people see through it. It's not my job to amplify messages that are false. It's my job to get information. And I've been doing this for a long time. The big difference though, is that before most of our interactions were out at chopper talk, right? When he'd get on the helicopter yep. and he'd come and I would fact check him on immigration. We had some really intense exchanges, but you just kind of heard my voice muffled amid the helicopter. And during the pandemic, there were a lot of people watching a briefing with a cuts camera. So people were able to put the face with the aggressive prosecutorial style questioning. And I think that's why it's maybe gotten a little more attention, but it's the exact same style of questioning that I used with Loretta Lynch, with Attorney, with Attorney General Loretta Lynch, Attorney General Jeff Sessions, Attorney General William Barr, my previous job covering the Justice Department, and with everyone I've encountered at the White House. 
Yeah, you know, I think the attacks on the press probably, and especially when they're sort of in a personal insult from the briefing room podium, probably have the long-term effect of delegitimizing the press to his supporters, to a very core group of supporters. But in the short term, they're, you know, I'm sure they turn off a, a lot of people who are just, you know, shocked at there being a normal question being asked of someone in power and them dismissing it with an insult. Um, now, your, your style of questioning, uh, which I would say is, is no nonsense, um, it presumably gets you a fair amount of criticism from Trump supporters. Do you feel like you get an inordinate amount of attacks either on, on social media or from hosts on Fox News, like more so than you would in another administration? So I don't recall too many attacks from hosts on Fox News. Okay. And I think part of that is- Consider yourself the lucky. <laughs> the questions are fact-based. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the instances, I think the reason that it didn't become more of a target is because to play those clips, it was a missed opportunity. It wasn't a gotcha, right? It was, yeah. it, it, was it didn't look maybe great for, for the president because if you don't have an answer to, hey, what did you do for one of the three months in this pandemic? That's not a great look. So I think a big reason I haven't felt that um, mm was because of the types of questions I asked. I'll also note, I interned at Fox News when I first <laughs> started out um, way back in the day. Uh, not Fox News uh, Network, but a, a local a local affiliate. I have a lot of contacts there, a lot of friends uh, who nice. work there. But I don't think that the primetime opinion hosts have targeted me for that. Look, mm-hmm. I covered Hillary Clinton's email investigation. And we didn't know at the time about the troll factories and a lot of the manufactured outrage. So sure. Having been through that um, and living for days and days and days and days and days to be bombarded, no matter what you reported, um, by comparison, none of this is really, it does, it just doesn't phase me. And I'm pretty good at sussing out, you know, the, the complaints and the attacks that come between like, you know, when does, when does the business open in Moscow? Like, you know, it's like late at night for us, the ones that come overnight and the ones that come from real voters. And, you know, sometimes I have perhaps like with a, a White House official interrupted too many times in my question. And I'll watch mm-hmm. it back and I'll say, you know what, this person was right. I should have let this person speak a little bit more. It goes back to that prosecutor training, right? Yeah. Uh, you want to make sure <laughs> yeah. the exchanges are, are educational, but uh, you know, you have to, you have to look at yourself too. So no, I mean the, the criticism, it doesn't, it doesn't really bother me. I've lived through it with a lot of other stories with a lot worse. And as long as your questions are based in facts, that's always going to carry you through. And, mm-hmm. you know, people who get upset with me with this administration, well, in the next, you know, year or five years from now, if the parties change, it'll be just as aggressive. And, and people sure. who are praising me now will be upset. It'll be consistent throughout my career. It's sort of bulldog style. It's just me. Well, that's, that's, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Now, Kaylee McEnany is the fourth press secretary, I believe. She follows Sean Spicer, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, Stephanie Grisham. Uh, how would you say she measures up against those? Um, do, do you find that she's she's a good press secretary to work with? Is she um, does she do a good job of representing the White House and the taxpayer? So I think my experience uh, with this particular regime in the press office has been better in that we do get press briefings, which we appreciate. They are more responsive than they were under Stephanie Grisham. Mm-hmm. But the briefings are not very substantive. And if you ask questions I've asked about you know, vaccine policy, things like that, there's just no information that's conveyed. A lot of it is, is sparring. Uh, a lot of it is uh, what aboutism. I don't find that the briefings are terribly valuable in terms of the information that is gleaned. 
Now, when it came to Sarah Huckabee Sanders, uh, behind the scenes, I, I felt like I had a great relationship with her behind the scenes, even if we had some pretty intense, again, those aggressive bulldog fact-checking uh, exchanges in the briefings behind the scenes. If I had a scoop, you know, we would talk, um, we would try to negotiate. Maybe she needed me to wait an hour, but she promised not to give it to anybody else. We had a really great professional working relationship, even if things got heated in the, in the briefing. I find right now with this current press office, um, it's not as much like that. But again, it's we have the briefings. Uh, they are what they are. They have a boss. Uh, they're playing again to 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 the boss. And if the boss wants uh, advocacy and and the sort of moments uh, and zingers instead of actual information conveyed to the taxpayers in exchange for the salaries that they're paying uh, the press office, you know, that's that's his prerogative, it's his staff. Do you feel like the, the press corps now has a sort of extra burden under this particular administration to band together? I've noticed there seems to be more camaraderie, whether it's you know deferring to a rival reporter who didn't get to ask their question or repeating a question that another reporter asked that wasn't answered. Um, is that something that you see as unique to this administration? Uh, this is the first White House I've ever covered. I covered the Obama administration through the Justice mm -hmm. Department. And I was actually really surprised when I came to Washington, the extent to which beat reporters at the Justice Department really did look out for each other. There's not a direct yeah. answer to your question, but it, it kind of gives a parallel to take the president out of it for a second. I remember one time there was a reporter who was sort of punished and left out of a really important FBI briefing on, uh, on I believe it was Dylan Roof. And all the reporters got together headed up by a New York Times reporter and wrote a letter complaining about this. This person cannot be excluded. This is not fair. Really banded together and protected that person. And in the White House press corps, it's a much more diverse group of outlets. Um, you have international outlets. You have some of these um, sort of favorited outlets uh, by, by the, the White House. Uh, so it's a different group. It's not quite the same, uh, the same level of support, but there are moments, you know, when the president will personally attack someone and if it gets too much, yeah, sometimes one of us might yell out like, that's not true, like, stop it. And there are times when I think that they call on one of us, uh, particularly the more aggressive reporters, to cut off a, a colleague who is also assertive <laughs> and aggressive. And those moments are just tough. And there are times when you yield one time I yielded to a colleague from CNN and then the president left and I didn't get my question. And I don't know if that was the right thing to do, the wrong thing to do. Um, perhaps the better thing would have been to just continue her questioning. But again, I, I don't have a lot to base it on. You do the best you can in the moment. It's not us against them, um, but it's just allowing your colleagues to, to do their job um, and, and execute uh, and be able to, to work and tell their stories and, and do their job um, without interference that, that is unfair. Because if you were ever subject to that, right, you'd want someone to help you. Like if you were deliberately sure, asleep, yeah. from that Dylan Roof briefing, you'd want the New York Times to, to get everybody to sign a, a letter on your behalf. So one thing in Washington that has always surprised me is the extent to which beat reporters, even if they're competitive, do look out for, for, for one another when it comes to, to getting knocked around or punished by the press office. So is there anyone in the White House press corps that you admire? Well, our own Major Garrett was our chief White House correspondent for a long time. And he is absolutely someone I have watched very closely. And I truly admire because he has the ability to be so deeply sourced, be so tough, and still command the respect, particularly of this administration. And he reports across so many platforms. 
Uh, he does the deep dives on his multiple podcasts. He's had, I think, more Trump officials uh, on his podcast than I think any other, any other outlet, any other platform. Uh, Nora O'Donnell is also, she's now our managing editor at CBC Evening News, but she is a former White House correspondent. And I have got to say, you know, during the pandemic, uh, Nora will call me with some of the most incisive, detailed questions, particularly about vaccine policy. And she also really gets like how the White House works. Uh, and sometimes I'll go talk to a source and they're like, oh, I was just talking to Nora. So I've been really impressed how she's managed to take uh, her White House correspondent skills with her all the way to you know her managing editor position. And it's a whole team. Like I, I, we write questions with our whole team. I mean, I work on a team with Arden Farhi uh, is our coordinating producer. I work with White House correspondent Weijia Jang, uh, their White House correspondent Ben Tracy. And we have this great team of producers, uh, Kristen Brown, uh, we have uh, Corey Rangel, we have uh, a lot of young uh, folks as well. We have, uh, we have Nicole Skango, we have Gary Iggy, we have uh, Mr. Dar, we have, of course, our Sarah Cook uh, as well in the booth with us, Finn Gomez. We have so many people on our team. We all work together. We craft the questions. Uh, we, we try to divide and conquer when these breaks. And, and I really admire just the, the team effort because it's, it's exhausting. I mean, it, it truly is exhausting some days uh, to cover this, but we're all really committed to the story. And it's really, it's important to, to really respect and, and admire the people you work with in that little teeny tiny space. And now last question, are we going to see another White House briefing and are we going to see you in another White House briefing uh, before the election? Do you have any idea? Okay, the one thing I've learned for the past three and a half, nearly four years, I would never attempt to guess what this White House's media strategy is. I have absolutely no idea if they, they tend have... to get this response frequently from White House reporters I whenever no I ask idea. them but to make a prediction. Any, anyone who even pretends to know, I, I would have absolutely, absolutely no idea. It's possible that maybe a Rose Garden event or two, uh, maybe outdoors uh, to diminish the risk. But it's, it's so inconsistent. I mean, there is, there is no pattern. And if the president believes that his time is best served in Georgia, in North Carolina, uh, in Pennsylvania, that's more likely where he will be. It's one of the reasons we had so many briefings and so much access for so long is because that was really the only way for him to get his message out because it was not considered uh, very cool to be traveling the country in April, May, or June. Thanks so much, Paul. I really appreciate it. Of course. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Interview. Please subscribe to The Interview on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and look out for our coverage of my conversation with Paula Reed on Mediate.com. We'll see you next week.